Welcome to Game Changers Live from Miami, Florida. My name is Sergio Tijera. I'm your host. And each and every week, we bring you someone who has been a game changer in their field and who's touched the lives of thousands to get their perspective on their journey, their mindset, their struggles and successes so that we can inspire you on your journey. So let's get started right now. And welcome to Game Changers Live. My name is Sergio. You can catch us each and every week on your favorite podcast channels. And thank you so much for all your support that you've given us. We're very proud to say that we're now a top 2% podcast ranked globally by Listen Notes. And we're coming to you from our beautiful home studio now located on the campus of FIU in Miami in the College of Communications, Architecture and the Arts, which is very, very fitting for my guest today, which is Mr. Richard Blanco. So Richard is an American poet, public speaker, author, and professional engineer. He's the fifth poet to read at the United States presidential inauguration, having read the poem One Today for Barack Obama's second inauguration. He's the first immigrant, the first Latino, and the first openly gay person at the time, and at the time, the youngest person to be the U.S. inaugural poet. And recently, he was also given the title as the first ever poet laureate at Miami-Dade County, and he's an FIU grad as well. So Panthers, pause up, my friend. <laughs> he's coming to us from Maine. How are you, Richard? Pretty good. Uh, uh, probably a lot cooler than you are down there in Miami right now. It's 62. <laughs> Absolutely. Today, so. <laughs> yeah, it's like 100 here. It feels like 100 uh, in Miami. We're nice and chill and cool here inside the studio home. So my friend, you, you've had a, a storied career. And, and I love the fact that you hail from Miami, Florida, and especially the Westchester neighborhood, which is where we're at right now, where I, where I call home. There's a lot of memories there. For, for those of you who aren't from Miami, there's a strong Cuban heritage, Cuban background in, uh, in this Westchester neighborhood. And one of the things that has driven you in your career and uh, in your poetic life and so forth has been this concept of home. Right. And that's been a, a huge influence on you. Tell me about what it was like for you growing up. Sure. So um, first of all, we have to say it's Wachetted. <laughs> exactly. You get it right. <laughs> that's how I that's how I used to say it. That's how I spell it. Well, um, you know, it's kind of interesting. Like sometimes you look back on your life and it feels like part of it has been scripted. Um, as I like to say, I was made in Cuba, assembled in Spain, and imported to the United States. So my mother left seven months pregnant from cuba pregnant with me uh i was born in madrid and 45 days after my birth we emigrated again to the united states and first to new york and eventually to miami and i was about four years old so why i say that is because basically at that age i i think my obsession with home or my question of home or my what i would little ricky would end up growing up to think about uh and write about uh i think was already planted those seeds were planted there right um Growing up uh, in Miami and in Westchester in particular, when it when it wasn't completely completely Cuban in 1972, um, there were still some Anglo's hanging hang, hanging around. But um, you know, Miami in general was a really interesting place that makes you one question the scent of home. I always like to say that I grew up between two really imagined worlds. One was the Cuba of my parents and grandparents and the whole exile community, this place that I came from, but 
wasn't born there, never been there, and yet felt so real at the same time. Um, and then the other one was America <laughs> or the United States, which uh, I think it was Liz Balmaceda who said, we uh, we love living in Miami because it's so close to the United States. So, so there was this other mythic homeland that I had too that was only what I saw on TV sitcoms and commercials. And so, uh, so a lot of, I think, um, a lot of, uh, you know, my childhood was spent not consciously because you're not thinking that deeply at seven years old, but it's it's affecting you. Just negotiating that those those worlds, right, and trying to find out who you are between uh, between these spaces. And um, eventually, when it came time to write, that's that was my go-to. That was the question that I think I was always born with. Um, and so did writing come to you very naturally? Did observing the world around you and putting words to that, did that just come naturally to you as a, as a gift? Or is that something that you were interested in and then you trained to become that? Yeah, no, I, I if you would have told me at 22 that I was going to be a poet, I would have laughed in your face. Um, I mean, I was always a left brain, right brain person. Um, I love all kinds of knowledge. Um, I score exactly the same in all those standardized tests, standardized tests between verbal and analytical. I had no doing in that. That's the way, that's the way my genes wired me. So, but really the circumstances were, you know, growing up in a working class or lower middle working class, lower working class immigrant family in Westchester, the idea of a career in the arts or, or the arts in general wasn't really, not that my parents did, I denied it to me. It just wasn't part of the realm of possibility. It wasn't, we weren't right. talking about Picasso around the dinner table. So like many immigrants, like, um, you know, um, like many exiles, we studied something practical um, and I studied engineering. Um, I loved it. I loved math. Uh, love math to me is another kind of language. I feel like I, that I feel like I've lost. But, um, but yeah, I studied engineering and um, lo and behold, when I started wor working in my consulting office where I ended up working for over 20 years, um, about half my job was writing <laughs> things they don't tell you in school, uh, writing reports and studies and letters and understanding language and communication skills were so key to your success, to your career. Um, even especially writing proposals for requests for proposals. Proposals are for the most part, a narrative. They're about your vision for the project, et cetera. But anyway, for understanding the power of language, and uh, I started becoming the go-to person for all kinds of writing. Um, and then I just started geeking out on language and thinking, oh, this is kind of cool. What else can I do with language? And I thought, what do I know nothing about? Poetry. Let's do that. So, uh, oh, wow. So I guess I always had a creative side. I just never knew how it would be expressed. I recently realized that part of why I went to language was because I never I don't remember ever not knowing two languages since a little kid. So, you know, there's, I think that imprinted in me as well, like translating for my parents at five years old, like in little, I mean, little words, not whole conversations, but understanding that language was power, understanding that language was a way of thinking in the world, that the way my parents thought was different than could be different than the way I thought in English. So I think when it came time to sort of do something creative, I naturally ended up thinking about language or coincidentally, all that came together. Um, 
and and yeah, I think that that that's when I started writing, uh, and, and I was about twenty seven, and I wasn't thinking about a career change, as I like to joke. Um, many interviewers think that you know the story goes something like I was forced to study engineering, and then I speak saw poetry, and the clouds parted, and the cherubs came right. down. Right. Um, and I was always like to joke, yeah, I wanted to go into poetry full time because there's so much money in it. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's a lucrative no obligation to stay in engineering. But I didn't have a career change in mind. I just wanted to add to my resume. And so I just started baby steps like everything in life. I think, you know, if we think about um, where we are today is probably a series of really small but important decisions, but pretty small. So I just took a class at Miami Dade College back when it was before it was Miami when it was Miami Dade College a community college community college right started exploring little by little started learning and started growing eventually applied uh, to the MFA program at FIU um, where I teach now <laughs> uh, I was rejected the first time because I was pretty novice writer but they did ask me to take some graduate classes because they saw some potential reapplied again the second year I got in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the rest is kind of history. But yeah, I, I often, um, you know, I think we tend to romanticize sometimes our own biographies or the biographies of others as if we had mapped out every single thing in our lives. But I think a lot of life is just paying attention and being open to your creative, your creative curiosities, your intellectual curiosities, and just not getting stuck, you know, just yeah. even if it's something just for just for your own enrichment. You never know where it's going to lead to. Um, and that was kind of what poetry was. I was just doing it because I was I was like, let me learn about this. This is fun. This is interesting. And this see, that's, is that is just, it's mind-blowing because, so number one, you said you're, you're fortunate enough to be born with the, you know, the right brain, left brain equal because you are equally strong and from, from both, per, both perspectives. Then at 27, you, you begin dabbling around in poetry you you get rejected going into FIU you know if somebody had told that person at FIU you just rejected the future presidential poet <laughs> it's like what so there's there's some it's amazing when you when you start looking back at you know how did we not see it right how do we not see it not only in the in those people but how do we not see our own genius you know the the genius that lies within and like you said if you're not open to and and curious about what you might be great at you may never find out right, right. i mean what you know you just said oh I'm gonna, let me let me start doing something i have no idea about and it just happened to be something that's that's brilliant for you you know that that really leverages your talents and skills i wonder how many people there are out there that just never tried it, right? They could have been amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know, and I'm still trying things. Believe me, I'm like um, right now. I'm, I'm working on. Uh, I just finished a play that's in that's in workshop right now. I'm also um, uh, a co-executive writing producer um, for um, a TV series. Well, development of a TV series based on the memoir about Westchester. Rejected, so oh, I've always challenged. Fantastic. Myself. So, um, I think it's uh, 
you know, I, that's what keeps me alive. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, I don't think it has to be something as radical, okay, engineered to poetry, but even trying something different within one's own field, right? Something that you, that might add to what you're already doing, uh, but that but we just get comfortable, right? Um, I think, it, you know, having an artistic uh, sort of uh, attitude towards anything, like whether you consider yourself an artist or not is important. Um, I always... Um, uh, to be an artist, I always say, is to be part of something that doesn't exist yet. And that's both terrifying and exhilarating <laughs> uh, because you're always on the verge of creating. Um, but, you know, getting back to like even even engineering itself, people think engineering is not a creative field. OK, we're not writing poems. That's true. But we have to be creative because we're building stuff that doesn't exist also. So no two bridges that I built are the same. You know, everyone is different. You have a certain set of parameters and skills that you have, you know, basic, but after that, it all, every project just goes through its own evolution. Mm -hmm. um, so we're all in a way creators. I think if we think of ourselves that way, I think it's, um, I think it's healthy and, and creators just want to keep on creating and exploring. Um, um and learning um and you know it all it all sort of it all sort of comes back um it all connects at some point um um i think i became a better engineer as i like to say because i became a poet and i became a better a better mm -hmm. i think i'm a better poet because i'm an engineer um <laughs> so all these things are compliment you know, i always say no knowledge is lost you know it's it all connects and, and helps and helps us um in whatever our our main endeavor is yeah. So design is is a big part of not only engineering, but also in poetry, right? You're designing an experience, you're designing a delivery that is supposed to move someone. Taking taking yourself back, back in the day when you were growing up, <clears throat> there the the Hispanic or at least the Cuban society was very homophobic. We all grew up with it. It was very difficult, you know, it, it was it, it was an uphill battle, so so to speak. At what point did you say, I know what I am. I, I want to design the rest of my life in, in a way that I can feel free and, and, and open, you know, and not, not hide. What was, what was that like? And how did that happen? Sure. Yeah. I, lo I love that word design because I, I always actually, Sergio, I always say a poem is designed, you know, I mean, yeah. it's creative, but at some point the, the left brain is designed, you know, when it gets, in the later stages of poem language is left brain um so it's really interesting they say for example in music which is has a lot of left brain um the the left brain remembers the lyrics the right brain remembers the melody so oh. um, so that's kind of interesting but yeah interesting. designing so so it's it's kind of all again sort of is folded in together um uh i came out by today's standards, relatively relatively late um, in my mid twenties, um, uh, and of course, it's not like you wake up one morning and say, "I'm going to come out today." It's, yeah, and, and today's the day. It's over, you know, <laughs> and like life goes on, and everything's great. It's a process for me. It's a process for all of us. It's a process for everyone, um, for the family. But um, it, I think there, there again, there's there's a connection point here. I think being a writer, or, or as I started writing. And the idea of being able to envision myself as an artist in the world, also the way that writing and writing poetry in particular makes one investigate one's life, I think gave me, I don't want to say the courage, but 
kind of let me see start seeing what the design of my life as a gay man would be right, right. um the idea that, that this 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 is a life that i can have and 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 will have um and i think poetry helped me along the way in that in that sense um however it's interesting i never i did i never came out in my poetry so to speak until my third book and partly was because I didn't know what story to tell or what was my story. So I'm a gay man, big deal. Welcome to the club. You know, like, um, and it was actually my grandmother and who was my primary caretaker and um, very homophobic, but also very xenophobic. So that every, anything that was sort of too American was also gay. So like <laughs> oatmeal was gay fruit loops was gay the brady bunch was gay so I, anyway my grandmother was my way into telling a story which is a particular story of a gay cuban working class kid in <laughs> westchester um because because just yeah i just i just didn't know what i wanted to write about and then my third book i figured that's what i really want to write about and more than that just thinking about like you were saying um homophobia within the family within the community but also sort of gender roles and thinking about um the ironies of machismo whereas i don't know about your family but in my family the strongest people were the women um <laughs> i mean men thought they were in charge right or were made, made to think they were in charge. yeah but if we look at ironically if we look at i think in general our, our latinx communities the women much like african-american communities the women are Very really strong that hold hold it together and 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 so uh and yet there is that irony where you know mach, machismo where it's the men who you know so right. anyway i started to explore all those nuances and i found the story to tell uh something to design so to speak interesting so how did you end up becoming the presidential poet what was that like because you started in your mid-20s dabbling in it and what was the progression after that so um i um i graduated in 1997 with my master in fine arts and creative writing at fiu um and uh my thesis was published uh shortly thereafter uh so that was my first book um then yeah i just i was engineer by day poet by night um carried both careers um i had the time i wasn't married didn't have children etc so um so, so yeah, I just carried both a career, published a second book, a third book, um, you know, doing what I could in terms of going on readings and involving my community, poetry community, involving my engineers. My engineers would go, <laughs> would go to my poetry readings. It was great. Um, um, interesting. Yeah. So, um, and then it was like kind of mid-career and I was just sort of contemplating what to do next, what I might write next or whatnot. And I just had this really sort of kind of spiritual moment um, where uh, I kind of said, why am I doing this? Um, I had a real sort of um, honest conversation with myself, you know, yeah. life was good. I was married. I don't, you know, I don't, I didn't need poetry to be happy in life. I was happy. <laughs> or right. I should say fulfilled. Um, and I thought, you know what, but I could be more fulfilled because of practicing poetry. And I kind of just re-engaged, um, recommitted myself, or I should say renewed my vows with poetry and said, well, mm -hmm. you know what, if anything is going to be your legacy, it's this. So 
I love poetry. I love what I love practicing it. I love what it does to me. I love the community of writers. I love how it how it changes my life. I love how it affects other people's lives, and just opened up myself to that that new possibilities. Um, I didn't know what that looked like, but I was just like, hmm, you know what? I'm not going to continue in engineering enough. <laughs> like, and I just took a leap of faith and said, I'm just going to take time for myself, write, and see what happens. Um, and about two months later, the White House calls. So, wow. So, I don't so, hold believe. On a second. Hold on a second. So you you quit your job? Yeah. Well, I, I was. I had moved to Maine, so I was working remotely, right. and like yeah. they sold the firm to this multinational. And I just said, you know what? I don't. That's not what I want to do. I don't want to work for some huge um, company. And 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 my firm was pretty big. It was three hundred people, but it was family. I was their eighth employee, so you can imagine. Wow. <laughs> I was just, you know, I had seniority but it wasn't yeah. just that it was family right so just let it go and see you know just i don't know what's next but um but i'm gonna i'm gonna you know point in a certain direction and see what happens yeah and so and so, so you commit yourself uh, and then two months later you get a call yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> out of the blue yeah so there's no process <laughs> for that. Um, there, you know, you don't. Nobody, you don't get shortlisted. You don't apply to be inaugural presidential inaugural poet. They just give you a call, and the White House has your phone number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can and, find out. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was a joke. Actually, I, I thought it was. I was like, what? Like, it took me a while to even get what they were saying. You're thinking, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're calling from Uganda, and you want me to give you my my social security number. <laughs> And they said, no, like Robert Frost and Maya Angelou. I'm like, oh. And I still thought, I still don't believe it. So like, I, Googled, come on. I Googled the person that called me. And sure enough, it said, uh, whatever, whatever, presidential inaugural committee um, scheduler. So she was, the person was the one in charge of all the talent. Wow. And then, um, yeah, I was driving. <laughs> I was driving from, I'll never forget, I was driving. Um, to my home in Maine from from a reading in New York City, um, actually, uh, and I just you're not supposed to use a cell phone in Maine, but I was uh, I mean in uh, Massachusetts, but I was stuck on the 495, so I was like, what the hell? <laughs> you're not supposed to use it, I guess, while you're driving. Yeah, hands free, okay. right? So right, right. But I didn't have hands free back then, <laughs> um, and uh, and thank God I took that call. Um, it was really oh interesting. My yeah, first no, I was. I was going to say, um, when you, when you got that call, did you ask him, okay, well, how did you find me or, or how did you hear about me or why me? <laughs> did you ask those questions? No, I, I didn't. Um, or you I said, I've been expecting so your call. I've been <laughs> right. I got the call on 12, 12, 12. So December 12th. Oh, wow. I had to be on that podium in Washington on January 21st. <laughs> wow. So, uh, it so was you had all to prepare something for you know, like a month's time, more or less, to be less, on less national TV. Because by the time they when they released the news, by then you couldn't write because it was just a media blitz of interviews and stuff. So really about three weeks. And they asked wow. me to write three poems, so three poems in three weeks. So I don't know yet. So I've had um, several opportunities. Uh, I've 
I've met with the president several times and I've had an opportunity to ask him. Uh, but um, I don't want to. <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I he kind of look each other in the eye and he's like, don't ask me because I'm not going to tell you. And I was like, don't worry, I don't want to know. <laughs> like, uh, I think partly uh, I have my romantic version of him reading my poems in the Oval Office and I'm not, you know, canceling his meetings with Putin or whatnot, which I'm sure he wouldn't have yeah. minded. <laughs> <laughs> like this blog goes an amazing poet. I want him to read. Uh, or, or him and Michelle like snuggled in bed reading my poems and going, honey, oh, we have God. to get Bronco for your knock. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it was somewhere in between. Like they must have maybe, but you never know. Like maybe maybe one of the daughters brought home my, my poetry is taught in schools. Um, maybe the daughters brought, or maybe it was just given a, a handful of poems poets that someone had researched and he, he but he did choose me personally so there was wow. something there i think in conversations with him the, the real connection is remember what i just told you about like made in cuba some of the spain if i thought my biography was complicated can you imagine barack obama's biography right. like raised in hawaii <laughs> like mother this the father that the moose to like yeah I mean, talk about a negotiation of identity and then a layer of of racial identity right um, yeah which i think you know we're talking about little ricky Ob little ricky obama sort of asking the same questions yeah where the, who the hell am i where am i living what is yeah. america am i an american um what what does this all mean and so um those same questions of again identity home belonging um I think for our common ground. So you wrote three poems and then they got to choose one of them. Yes. Okay. Yes, the one I read. Yeah. Okay. The one I read. yeah. <laughs> and, and the what other, did you do with the other two? The other two are published, um, in, um, in my most recent, uh, poetry book called how to love a country, uh, which mm -hmm. is a bit of a different book for me. It's really asking the same, I mean, it's asking the same question of home, place, and identity, but a much larger scale because um, imagine you're now, you have written a poem for the entire country, the entire, you know, 40 million people have, un have, are, have <laughs> know you now, right? So, um, right. or know of you. Um, and so I just started thinking and realizing from all the conversations, feedback, uh, just traveling all around the country. I would spend like 90 of my 90% of my time just traveling, doing lectures, readings, keynotes. Wow. Um, everybody was telling me the same thing. I, you know, what I represented to them was that, you know, they realized they already knew they didn't know how quite how they fit in America. If the American narrative included them, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so really asking the question of what is home, but really in a larger scale, right? Uh, yeah. What is home, not just to me, but to us and not just Cubans, but and not just Westchester, not just Miami and not just Florida, but really what is a cut? So the book, again, is how to love a country, which is almost also a question mark, right? It's mm -hmm. like, what is a country? How do we love such a thing? What does that mean? And how do we connect to that? So, so it digs into those questions, both historically and also in present day. And especially book was published in 2014. And we thought things were bad then, but, you know, taking up the issues of political divide and whatnot and thinking about, well, right. how, 
what are we not looking at? What questions aren't we asking about our history, about ourselves um, presently, and thinking about how poetry can um, create discourse, um, civic discourse, um, in ways that art can, that that is not, you know, on the nose political, but rather right. really thinking that about truth being in the gray somewhere and how can we find, again, some common ground. So a lot of the book is very different book for me and yet not, right? <laughs> yeah, no, but that must've been powerful. And when you went, when you stepped up to the stage and they called on you and you get up to that platform, you're looking out over the sea of people. What is going through your mind at that point? Sure. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, a couple of things. Um, one, when I got that phone call, um, at first I wasn't. I was terrified. I was just like, why? I was just. The first thing that came to mind was an over, like a really overwhelming sense of gratitude, not because I was going to be the presidential inaugural poet, but because of my parents and my grandparents, uh, and realizing that. You know, we think that we are that we have written everything about our stories, but really, our, so much is written before we even get up to bat, so to speak. Right? Uh, the choices that my parents left made, including leaving Cuba, the choices that my parents made in terms of always upholding education, no matter how poor we were, we would not put the air conditioning on in Miami, Florida, just so we could afford to send us to parochial school to St. Brown, wow. Columbus. So those kinds of choices that you don't realize are shaping your life. And so I realized that that moment was only possible because of my, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents. Right. Um, and, um, it felt like, like that was the true beginning of my story, the story that I picked up and started to write and now needed to finish writing, um, for them, for myself. And so that was kind of the same kind of things that was, that were going through my mind when I was up at the podium. I had two things I had in, uh, in my folder. I had one is a picture of my grandparents on my mother's side, whom I never met, who died in Cuba before I ever got to visit Cuba. Um, I was reading to them and all my people. Wow. And all my ancestors. And then the other one was a note from my uh, from my partner, from my sort of husband after 22 years, <laughs> Mark. Uh, but the thing that was going through my head was, okay, so it's, I'd love to, I wrote a whole little memoir about it. It's called For All of Us One Today, an inaugural poet's journey, because I needed to make sure that that got recorded for other presidential inaugural poets. <laughs> nobody to turn to, to really, right. you know, How do you mentor? And three are already dead. So now so there's here's, here's what to Amanda expect. Gorman. It's only my Amanda Gorman, myself, and Elizabeth Alexander that know this experience. Um, it's a good club. But, um, there you go. It's really interesting because the the ceremony itself, and it's not because you know I'm an Obama fanatic or anything like that. But the inauguration is just really this really interesting moment. It's more. It's it's really defines America much more than stupid Fourth of July parades and all this stuff. It, it's a palpable sense of that we're all gathered here for something greater than any one person, even greater than Beyonce, who's sitting like two chairs down from me, <laughs> even greater than James Taylor, even greater than the president. And there's a palpable yeah. sense that you are in service to something bigger than yourself. 
And so by the time we're halfway through, I actually wanted to get up and read them. I was like, come on, Kelly Clarkson, finish up. I want, I need to, I want, <laughs> I want to hit the stage. <laughs> I want this poem to, I want to give this poem to country, not out of ego, but just as a gift. And, um, yeah. And so that's what, um, sort of ran through my mind. Um, a couple of things when I get up there, um, both the president and vice president stand up and shake my hand. And I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but I should have. But I, I literally, they're sitting right behind me. And so I thought, the President of the United States just stood up and shook my hand. In front and of I the entire know, nation, too. From this little chubby boy, from a gay boy from Westchester. My mother sitting right there, grew up in a dirt floor home in Cuba. And I thought, if this isn't the American dream, I don't know what it is. Like, I'm never going to wash this hand, right? <laughs> And then one little sort of interesting anecdote. So Gloria Stefan, of course, and Emilio, who are such supporters of all artists, but especially artists of our Cuban community, had sent word through my agent to um, said, tell them to look into that crowd and, and just embrace it and don't turn away from it because it's only going to happen once. Right. And if you look in the video, I'm thinking about what Gloria said, and I just take about a second or two to look out over the crowd and not and just take it in take for it a second. In. And and be at be embrace it and be one with it. Um, so that was also um, that's also why I wasn't that nervous uh, because in a sense, like I said, you're you feel part of something larger and your ego sort of goes away. Or it's one of those things in life that's just too big to fail. Like yeah. your ego doesn't try to like say right, right. Up. What do you think you are? <laughs> or like you got to be perfect? Like you know. It just yeah. it just has its own life. Um, so, wow, what a story, Richard! You're an, you're an inspiration, man, so, to so many uh, Americans, but especially Cuban Americans and and uh, the Cubans here in Miami and Miami, Florida in general. Uh, with what you've done, it's been one of a kind. If you haven't watched his his uh, presidential uh, poem address, please check it out on on YouTube. You can find uh, more info as well. Um, on his website, which is richard-blanco.com. Thank you so much for everything you do. Keep up the great work. It's been incredibly inspirational and hope to see you down here in Miami soon. As we said, as we get together with all the past game changers and, uh, and hopefully you can read a poem that night too. So thank Thanks you, my friend. I love it. Thanks for the work we you do. It takes a village to keep this, this world moving. So that's right that's right thanks guys and have a great evening have a great week and make sure to share this with somebody who needs to hear it you could be the game changer in their life if you loved what you heard in today's episode of game changers please subscribe and rate us the lessons and the stories in these podcasts are immensely valuable so i invite you to share them with a friend who needs to hear it you may end up being the game changer in their lives